November 14th, we are moving to a 10 a.m. gathering, uh, which is exciting. Yes. Uh, very excited about that. We're going to continue to communicate that to you in the coming weeks, but November 14th, we'll be moving to 10 a.m. Uh, and really looking forward to that. Well, if you've got your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. If, we don't, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some for you over there on that table. You can go grab it and, and keep it. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. But Genesis 22, we're in the middle of a series walking through the book uh, of Genesis. Last week we saw Abraham uh, be tested by God as God told him to offer up his son as a sacrifice, but we saw God provide for him, uh, give a ram in place of Isaac, and now uh, we're going to get a little hinge passage at the end of chapter 20 that really kind of introduces us to Rebecca, who's going to come into play in the next chapter, chapter 24. Uh, and then in chapter 23, we're going to get this scene and story that seems uh, a little bit kind of anticlimactic. Like we're going to read through it, and at first read, you're going to be like, why is this even in here? It seems a little bit anticlimactic as it's uh, sandwiched in between this story of Abraham and Isaac nearly offering him up, and then Isaac meeting Rebecca and marrying her in chapter 24. T 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis. It's just a beautifully told story. Uh, and so this whole chapter about Sarah dying and then Abraham uh, negotiating for a field and a cave uh, with the Canaanites seems a little bit anticlimactic and unnecessary. Uh, but what I want to tell you from the start is that this is deeply connected to the promises that God gave to Abraham. And I really do think uh, that it can fill us with an incredible hope. And so there's really just one thing I want to drive us towards this morning. One thing I want you to see uh, from Genesis 23, and it's this is that the promises of God mean that there is hope beyond the grave. The promises of God mean that there is hope beyond the grave. And so let's look at this together. Genesis chapter 22, we'll start in verse 20, and then we'll read through the end of chapter 23. And so starting in verse 20, the very word of God to us today speaks like this. It says, Sarah lived, uh, sorry, verse 20, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother. I'm not really sure if that's how you pronounce that, but that's a pretty cool name, like some twin boys named Uz and Buzz. If you go ooze and booze, it's not like that's really any better either. And so I'm not sure that's who they are. Uh, Kimuel, the father of Aram, of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Tabah, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, Hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property, 
for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So the chapter begins uh, with the death of Sarah, and it tells us that she was 127 years old when she died, which means that Isaac is now 37 years old, and it's been 62 years since God first called her and Abraham from the land that they were to journey to the promised land that he was going to show them and he was going to give to them. And uh, this is the first time in the Bible that someone's both their death and burial is recorded, and this, this really is the end of an era. Because God made all these great promises to Abraham and Sarah that he would give them a son and that he would give them the land to them and to their offspring as a possession. Uh, and, and Sarah got to see the fulfillment of the son being born to her and Abraham in their old age, but she did not get to see the fulfillment of God's promise to give them the land in full. Uh, she died in faith, as Hebrews 11 says, looking forward, not yet having received the things promised. And so because of this, I think this text is just naturally leading us to ask the question, uh, because of the way that Sarah dies here, are, are we ready to die? Like, do we have the sort of faith that Sarah did, looking forward, knowing that more is to come and that God is not through fulfilling his promises to us? Like, do we have a hope that goes beyond the grave, or is our hope only in what we can get out of this life? Like, I, I know, myself included, most of us being younger, this is just not something that we think about, but, but are you ready to die? Like, are you living today in a way that what, that what is said about Sarah here could be said about you at your funeral, that you died in faith? I think this text is just driving us to ask this question, to let us know the reality, once again, that death is coming for all of us, to ask us if we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. After this, the text tells us that Abraham goes in to weep and to mourn for Sarah. And, and this is, I think this is really good for us to hear. Uh, because in some corners of the church, it's almost as if you're not allowed to really be sad and to grieve and mourn uh, when someone passes away like this. It's almost as if you're just supposed to be happy uh, and not sad about it because they're in a better place and we have the hope of the resurrection. And, and look, while both of those things are true, that's not the direction that the Bible leads us. Like, we should grieve. We should mourn because death is an enemy. It should not be this way. 
Like one of the reasons that death is so painful is because it's an intrusion into God's good creation. It shouldn't be here. We brought it into the world. Death is an enemy, and there is the reality of loss and separation, and we should grieve for that. Like, yes, we do have the hope of the resurrection. We're going to talk all about that, but, but that's not what we experience yet. What we experience right now is the pain of loss and separation, and we should mourn for that. We should grieve over that. It's for us to feel sad about these things, but, but the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to grieve as those without any hope, and that's what the rest of this text is going to show us. And so after Abraham is done uh, mourning and weeping uh, over Sarah, he kind of gets up and he begins to negotiate to try to buy a piece of land uh, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the people who were living in the promised land. And uh, at first, it seems like these Hittites are going to be really generous and just allow him to borrow one of their tombs, like whichever one he wants. But Abraham doesn't want to do that. He wants to have a piece of the land for himself as his own possession and property. And look, this makes sense because if you just borrow it, like they could always change the terms or take it back, right? Like if, if, I t if you say, hey, I, I need somewhere to store my stuff, and I say, well, we've got a little bit of room in our guest bedroom. You can store it there. Well, I could always come back a week or two later and say, hey, you're going to have to find somewhere to put your stuff. Like I, I need that space again. And, and you have no ability to push back on me with that because it's my room and it's not yours, Right? And so Abraham doesn't want to do this. He presses them and he says, no, let me buy something from you. Uh, and it seems like he's had his eye on one place in particular, the cave of Machpelah uh, that belongs to Ephron. And so Ephron hears about this and he tells Abraham, hey, not only will I give you the cave, I'll give you the field that the cave is in as well. Which, once again, at first read seems really generous, but what Ephron is doing here is he's upselling Abraham. Like, he has no intention to really give all of this stuff to Abraham for free. Uh, and by throwing in the field, he can charge a higher price to Abraham for both of these things. Right? It's like if you're trying to buy a new TV and the salesperson is like, oh, man, such a great choice. This is a great TV. Uh, a TV this great really isn't going to be complete without a sound bar to complete it. Like, a TV with this much horsepower, you're going to need a sound bar to be able to fill out the room. Uh, and so we've got some package deals for you. It's only going to be a couple grand more uh, to buy this sound bar, but like you, you just can't go without this. You've got to have both. And, and so this is what Ephron is doing, uh, but Abraham still agrees to buy this prize, buy both the cave and the field, and he tells Ephron to name his price, and Ephron says 400 shekels. Now, by all accounts, this is an exorbitant amount of money, uh, a thousand years later from this point, when David is trying to buy the site that the temple will be built on, he pays 50 shekels for the entire site that the temple will be built on. And so this is a crazy exorbitant price, but Abraham buys the field, he agrees to it, uh, he weighs it out, and then the text ends by telling us that the field and the cave were made over to Abraham as his property, as his possession, in the presence of all of the Hittites that were at the gate of the city. And so that's the story. Uh, let's pull back for a little bit and, and see what this might have to say to us. Because once again, it seems a little bit anticlimactic, does it not? That sandwiched in between the story of Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac meeting and marrying Rebekah, that we would get this whole chapter that's really not focused on the death and burial of Sarah. It's focused on this negotiation over the land. Like it seems unnecessary. 
But, but Moses, the author, has left us some clues to show us just how important this story actually is. And so I want you to notice a few things. Think about a few things with me. First, notice, did you notice, like, how often it said that this all was being done in the presence of the Hittites, the presence of all the people that sat at the gate of the city in public where everybody could see it. Like that's trying to show us that everybody saw this transaction take place so no one can come back and dispute this and say, no, this isn't really Abraham's property. And then not just that, did you notice that twice in verses 17 through 20, it says that the cave and the field were made over to Abraham as his property and his possession. That's just trying to highlight for us really clearly that this is his property now. It's his possession. He truly owns it. And then finally, notice in verse 2 and then again in verse 19, it tells us that Sarah died and then was buried in the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. And so 62 years after God first called Abraham and Sarah and made this promise to him, Abraham finally has a piece of the land that God promised as his own possession. Like God is beginning to fulfill this promise to him. He's beginning to do what he said he was going to do. And so Abraham, buying this cave in this field, it's, a, it's actually a deep act of faith on the part of Abraham. Because he believes that even though Sarah has died, that their story is not over and that God is not done fulfilling his promises to them. And he buries her here in the land of Canaan rather than the land that they came from that used to be their home because he believes the promises of God. It's why he's willing to pay such an exorbitant amount of money for this field because he believes that the land that they came from is not their home, but the land that God promised to them is their true home. Like Abraham is going to die in chapter 25. He's going to be buried here as well. But even though Sarah has died and even though he is nearing his death, he believes that God's promises to him have not died. That death will not be the end of God's promises. It does not mean the end of their story. I, I mean, the only way that a purchase like this makes sense is if Abraham believes that one day God's promise will be fulfilled in full and that God will give his descendants the entire promised land. Because he has never owned an inch of the promised land before this. And so why, after 62 years, would your first purchase in the land be a cemetery instead of a house unless you believe that God's promises don't quit at death? He believes this field and this cave is God's down payment on his promise, that it's the proof that one day he will give the land in full and will do what he said he's going to do. Like even as at the end of Sarah's life and as Abraham nears the end of his life, He's looking forward. He's not looking backward. Abraham will be buried here. Isaac will be buried here. Rebecca will be buried here. Jacob and Leah will be buried here. Joseph, at the end of Genesis, when they're in Egypt, he will tell the Israelites to bring his bones back here to the promised land. They all died in faith, believing that the, their death was not the end of God's promises, that God would fulfill this, His promises to them in some way, even in a way that transcended their death, that God's promises to them was stronger than their death. John Calvin says it like this. He says, Abraham particularly wanted to have his own family tomb in that land that had been promised to him for an inheritance. 
This would bear testimony to later generations that God's promise did not end with his own death or with the death of his family. For while the corpses themselves were silent and speechless, the tomb cried out that death was no obstacle to their taking possession of their inheritance. And so what he's saying there, he's saying future generations of Abraham's descendants could point to this tomb and they could know that just as clearly as God miraculously brought Isaac into the world in Abraham and Sarah's old age and fulfilled that aspect of the promise, that one day he would fulfill this aspect of the promise to them as well. That even if they didn't have it yet, that the land was coming to them in full. I think you can even see this in the way Abraham identifies himself in verse 4 when he says he's a sojourner and a foreigner among them. You see, Abraham believes that this life isn't it, and because he believes that this life isn't it, his hope just isn't in this life alone. He can live as a sojourner and a foreigner knowing that he's not going to see the full fulfillment of God's promises in his lifetime, but he has a hope that goes past death. And listen, that, that same identity and calling is given to us. 1 Peter 2 verse 11 calls us sojourners and exiles using the same Greek words that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses here when Abraham identifies himself. Like this is our identity. This is our calling as well to be sojourners and exiles. And so what would change if we believed this? What would change if we truly did believe that we are sojourners and foreigners, that this present life and this present world isn't actually our home? Well, maybe thinking about it like this uh, might help. So a month ago, uh, about a month ago, my wife Braylon and I, we took a road trip up north and uh, just stayed in a few different places, stayed at a few different Airbnbs, uh, and they were all great. Uh, But do you know what we didn't do at any of the Airbnbs we stayed in? Uh, We didn't paint the walls, Uh, we didn't rearrange the furniture, Uh, we didn't redecorate, we didn't hang up any paintings or pictures on the walls. Uh, You know why? Because that wasn't our home, right? Like we knew we were only going to be there for a few days, and so we didn't try to make it our home. And look, the same thing is true ultimately for us when it comes to this life. We are sojourners and foreigners. This present life and this present world are not our home. And if we will believe that, man, then we're freed up in some incredible ways. Because look, this means that our gifts, the things that God has given us, we can start to view them as gifts from God to be used to serve and love others with, rather than things that have to be God for us and serve us and satisfy us. Like our home can become a hub for hospitality where we welcome and love and serve our friends and our neighbors. Our conversations about money can become, where can we find some extra to be generous? Like where can we create some margin in the budget so that we can give more so that more people might be served and more people might hear about Jesus? You see, this reality, it reorients us to what's most ultimately true and what ultimately matters. It tells us that our time is not our own anymore and that this life isn't it, and so we don't have to spend all of our time on ourselves. And so we can start thinking about our time in the same ways, in the ways of, man, how can I use this to serve other people? How can I find ways to love my family, love my kids, and invest in what really matters? I'll just give you one practical way that you can do that. God's great plan for human history, uh, what everything is headed towards, Uh, It's not me and Jesus. 
It's not you and Jesus. It's the church. It's the redeemed people of God with Jesus forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Like, that's God's goal for history. That's where everything is headed. And so if that's the case, why would we not get in step with the program here? Like, if that's where everything is heading, if that's what ultimately matters most, man, then we should live to serve the church. We should live to build up the church. And look, when I say that, as much as I love and believe in all the different kind of programs and events and things that we're doing here, I'm really not so much talking about those. I'm talking about the people. Like this reality should cause us to take ownership for one another and start to think like, man, where can I find free time to pray for my brothers and sisters here in the church? Where can I carve out time to encourage them? How can we get together and encourage one another in Jesus, help each other follow Jesus? Because this is what ultimately matters most. And this is what's happened in Abraham's life. Abraham now, he has the faith to believe that he is a sojourner and an exile, that this life isn't his home. And so he's freed up to walk by faith, to believe, to trust in these things. And so how does he do that? Like, where, where do you get the freedom to live like that? Where does this sort of faith and confidence in God to live like that come from? Well, Abraham has this faith and confidence in God to believe that God's promises to him will not quit even in death because he's already seen resurrection. Like he's already seen God give life to Sarah's dead womb and God figuratively raise Isaac from the dead as he spared him and put a ram in his place that was sacrificed instead of Isaac. Abraham has seen that God is the God who has power over life and death, power over the grave, and so he trusts that even in death, God's promises to him will be fulfilled. And look, the good news is that the story is the same for us, only it's even better. Because just like Abraham could point to this tomb as the evidence that God's promises to him were not finished, we have an empty tomb on the outskirts of Jerusalem to point to that tells us that death is not the end of the story. Like we have hope that goes beyond the grave because our God is the God who has power over the grave. And this God... This God that made this promise to Abraham so long ago, this God in the fullness of time, he stepped into human history and he lived the perfect life of faithfulness that none before him had ever lived. And then he took that perfect life and he went to the cross and even though he had no sin of his own, he laid his life down for us as a sacrifice in our place, the true Isaac, to die for our sin and pay for it all. And he died. And he was buried in a tomb just like Sarah. But unlike this tomb that Abraham paid for, Jesus just borrowed his tomb because he knew that he wasn't going to be staying there. Like Jesus, he defeated death. This means that death is not final. Death is not the end. And death does not win the victory because there is someone who is stronger than death. And his name is Jesus. He went through death. And in his death, he put death to death. He conquered death so that death would no longer conquer us. And listen, here's what the resurrection of Jesus means. Just like Abraham and his offspring could point to this tomb as the down payment and the proof that God was going to fulfill his promises in full, the empty tomb of Jesus is the down payment. It's God's down payment of the new creation. It's the first fruits. It's how we know a whole new earth is coming in full. 
It's the proof that God is going to make all things new and that one day all the sad things are going to come untrue. It's how we know that there is a day coming where there will be no more death and no more sin and no more pain and no more sorrow. It means that the clock is ticking on sin and death and brokenness. It means that sin and death and brokenness will not win out in the end. Life will. Sin and death have an expiration date. Life with Jesus does not. Like we have hope that's greater than the grave, that's more powerful than the grave, because for all who trust in Jesus, we will see him face to face. We will know a life free from sin and brokenness and curse and sorrow. We will live with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. And this can lead to just an unshakable hope. I mean, just a few weeks ago, I watched a man laugh in the face of death have real, genuine joy, even as he was suffering terribly, and he knew that he was staring down the end of his days in this world. Like, where do you get a hope like that? Who does that? Where do you find a hope like that, that can laugh in the face of death and have real, genuine joy in deep suffering? Look, only the gospel can give you that sort of hope, because only the gospel can tell you that when you close your eyes for the last time in death, the next thing that you'll see when you open them up is the face of your loving Savior. The gospel is the only thing that can tell you that at that moment, after you die, that you'll be more alive at that moment than you've ever been. And listen, this hope, it's not just wishful thinking. It's a certainty. Because just like Abraham and his descendants could point to this tomb at Machpelah and say, you see that tomb, That tomb means that God is not done fulfilling his promises to us. This tomb is the first installment and God never goes back on his word. Just like that, we can point to the empty tomb of Jesus and say, you see that tomb? That tomb means that one day God's going to make all things new. That's the down payment. That's the first installment and God will never go back on his word. He's going to make all the sad things come untrue. He's going to bring us into a new creation free from death and sorrow and pain. He already is. The resurrection is the first fruits. It's the proof that more is coming and that resurrection life will reign in the end. Listen, this life isn't it, and this life ultimately isn't even what's most important. The resurrection of Jesus reorients our priorities to tell us what's really true and what ultimately matters. And so we should live this day in hope of that day that is coming when Jesus makes all things new and life will reign. Because look, we have more to live for and we have an unshakable hope to cling to. There's an empty tomb on the outskirts of Jerusalem and a risen king sitting on his throne in heaven right now, alive and well, telling us that it's true. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this good news that even though death is a reality in a world broken by the curse and broken by sin, you have defeated death. You are not dead. You are alive forevermore. And you live and reign with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus, would you fill us with this resurrection hope? Death is an enemy, but it's an enemy that has been defeated. So, Jesus, help us to live in these ways. Help us to live as sojourners and exiles in a world that's not our home, knowing that you will bring us into our true inheritance, that 
even if we die in faith, before we see the fulfillment of these promises, you will not leave us uh, without them. You will bring us to yourself, and you will fulfill these promises in full. Thank you for the good news, Jesus, that we have come here today not to worship a historical figure who did good things and then died, and that was the end of the story. We're here to worship you, Jesus, because you're alive, you're reigning, you've conquered death, and you're present with us right now through your spirit. And so fill us with that hope, uh, even right now. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.